0: Millennials? Have we gone from the greatest generation to the softest? With us today, a member of the United States Senate who knows how to turn millennials into adults. Ben Sass of Nebraska on Uncommon Knowledge now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A fifth-generation Nebraskan and the son of a football coach. Ben Sass attended public schools in Fremont, Nebraska, spending his summer working in cornfields. He holds degrees from Harvard, Oxford, and Yale, and he spent five years as president of Midland University. Ben Sass was elected to the United States Senate in 2014. Unlike most members of the Senate who leave their families behind in their home states, Senator Sass takes his family back and forth with him from Nebraska to Washington helping his wife homeschool their three children. Senator Sass is the author this spring of The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Senator Sass, welcome back to Uncommon Knowledge. Good to be here. Shooting today from Stanford University. Welcome to Stanford. Beautiful place. Tell us the story of the Midland University Christmas tree.
1: So I was 37 when I became a college president and I'm a business turnaround guy and I live in this town where this special 130-year-old college is in danger of going bankrupt. Nobody thinks they're hiring me uh, to run this college because I know anything about student affairs or student culture. And yet, that's the thing that's keeping me up at night, my first 6, 12 months, 18 months at the school. I knew we were going to get the debt restructured, and we were going to raise new money, and we were going to try to buy another college, and we were going to be able to solve the business problems. But I was worried about what was happening on student in student life. And one event crystallized it sort of more than everything else. It's The anecdote doesn't make the world, but it sort of captured an angst I had. We had a big athletic arena. And there was a 20-foot Christmas tree to be erected, you know, the day before or day after Thanksgiving. I don't remember when it was. And we had a bunch of students who were employed by the athletic department or the advancement and development office. And these are good jobs. Like, these are sort of the best of the students. are being paid. And it's desirable to work in the development office or to work in the athletic department. These are hardy and healthy, vital, young 19, 20, 21-year-olds. And they were supposed to decorate the Christmas tree. It's 20 feet tall and the tree was there and all the decorations were there and they decorated all the bottom eight feet of the tree with twice as many decorations as you would probably need because they spent all their decorations in the bottom eight feet and then they're packing up to leave and the tree is naked from foot eight to 20. And the vice president for development happens by and she's like, hey, what are you guys doing? And they said, yeah, we used all the decorations and we're done. And she said, but what about the top half of the tree? And uh, they said, well, we didn't know how to get up there. And she said, "So did maintenance refuse to bring you a ladder?" And it turned out that nobody had really thought to ask. There was no real problem solving in the group. It was we've been given a task and we get to leave when the task is done. And
0: bright kids, healthy kids, kids. able kids, but passive. Passive is the right adjective. Okay. Uh, this book lays out the figures. Millennials. I don't millennials and those coming up behind them. Do they have a name yet? Does this n- next generation yeah. whatever? M- let's yeah. call millennials. Well. Kids, they marry later, they live with their parents longer, they know less about American history, they demonstrate less initiative and more passivity, they participate less in religious organizations. They're softer not just psychologically, but physically. You note that whereas in the 1960s, only one teen in 20 was obese, today one teen in five is obese. That is a quintupling. Soft, passive, and this despite having grown up during a period of peace, and by and large economic expansion in the richest and most powerful nation in human history.
1: What has gone wrong? You said in spite of, maybe it's because of. So I want to be clear, uh, this book is a constructive book. It's mm-hmm. two-thirds program for how to think about habit formation. for. 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds, the part we're going to talk about first, it sounds like, is the one-third stage setting about the problem. Right. But this book is not a blame-laying book. It is not a beat-up-on-millennials book. It is a, wow, what is this category, perpetual adolescence book? Because that's a new thing in human history. I want to be clear. Adolescence is a pretty special concept. It's only about two millennia old uh, that we came up with this idea that you go from the dependent state of childhood to the independent state of adulthood and you don't have to boom transition from one to the other instantaneously when you become physically an adult. Two millennia ago people came up with this concept that When you biologically transition from childhood to adulthood at puberty, that doesn't mean you have to immediately be fully independent financially, emotionally, morally, Mm -hmm. in terms of school leaving or household structure. We have this idea that for 18 months to four years, you can have a kind of greenhouse phase of intentional transition from one to the other. That's great, as long as we remember that adolescence is meant to be a means to an end. It is not the destination. Peter Pan is a dystopian hell Uh, it is not a utopia as Disney has tried to remake it Peter Pan is a character who becomes physically an adult and yet he has no historical awareness he has no moral awareness he kills people and he doesn't even remember their names that's a bad thing we don't want to be sort of man babies we want our kids to go from a stage of necessary dependence to more and more independence when they can so the argument here
0: is that If the children grow up in conditions of peace and prosperity, parents, the society cannot simply leave it to reality to slap them around
1: and shape them up. Parents have to help them grow up more intentionally. Right. I think that though there's no blame laying in this book, right. if there were, it would be at we the parents and grandparents' feet to not have thought through what does it mean that our kids are growing up at the richest time and place in human history? Because there's a lot about that that's obviously great, to be right. protected from levels of violence that most people have right. known throughout human history, to be projected protected from abject poverty. But we're going to need to figure out how to celebrate scar tissue with these kids because scar tissue is the foundation of future character and we okay. need to celebrate it.
0: So, we cannot do the book justice, because this is video, not, not, not print. But we're going to do as, be- as well as we can. As you say, two-thirds of this book, this marvelous book, is uh, it's a kind of handbook on how to help kids grow up into real adults. So let's take a few of, the, a few of your maxims. Discover the body. I'm quoting. Discover the body. Te- teens need to appreciate the joys of birth and growth and the tragedy of pain and decline. Discover the body. That's your first bit of instruction. Why?
1: Yeah, I, I wanted to think about, as you transition from childhood to adulthood, it isn't enough to just progress through grades in school most people most times in human history have had rites of passage they've had the big hunt they've had intentional home leaving they've had first job or first economic self-sufficiency we've sort of muddled all these markers together and so what i really care about is when you're 13 versus 15 versus 17 what are these habits what are what are the sort of affections and loves what what are the mm-hmm. exposures you should have and so some is about work ethic and limited consumption etc but one of them is the body is Uh, necessary, you need to understand your body intergenerationally because you go from a state of dependence to independence but you're ultimately going to decline and become dependent again and we're raising 15 year olds that spend almost all of their time with 15 year olds and 19 year olds that spend almost all of their time with 19 year olds that's really weird historically no one has ever done that before if you brought people in a time machine from 300 years ago to 3,000 years ago and you dropped them in today I think the main thing they would think is weird about our life at first is just the material surplus. There's a cornucopia of produced goods that they would have known a world of nature and a couple of things that have been built. And our world is just filled with tools and instruments and consumption aids and whatnot. But 30 days past that, I think that people from another place, another time, would think the strangest thing about us is that we live entirely age-segregated lives. Got it.
0: You quote, Puritan minister, I'm quoting now, Puritan minister Cotton Mather was severely blunt. Now you're quoting Cotton Mather in your book. Go into burying place, children. You will there see graves as short as yourselves. Yea, you may be at play one hour. Dead, dead, the next, close quote. And you quote that approvingly. (laughs) It's a winsome book, isn't it? (laughs) But But you're very serious about this point. It's kind of memento mori. You want children to understand. You want children to spend time with grandparents. You want them to spend time with the old, the declining neighbor across the street. You want them to be aware of the way this all ends, even as they're
1: beginning. If our kids are gonna be wise, they need to be around people who've actually passed through some years. A 13-year-old is never gonna become wise spending all of their time with 13-year-olds. I have two teenage daughters. My kids are 15, 13, and six. Uh, our girls are the, the teenagers. It hurts when a 13-year-old girl experiences the slight of another 13-year-old girl. Right. And yet, if you know 60-year-olds and 75-year-olds and 90-year-olds, it doesn't hurt quite as much. Because right. probably this moment you're living at is not the be-all and end-all of your whole existence. Right.
0: Ben and The Vanishing American Adult, develop a work ethic. Tell us about your grandmother, Elda Krebs Sass.
1: My grandmother was, uh, I don't think she ever clocked in at 100 pounds. You know, she was about 4'11", this tiny woman, and yet had larger-than-life personality and charisma. And when I was a kid, I used to travel with my grandparents a lot in the back of their car. My, my grandfather uh, came back from World War II, never went to college himself, but was the business manager of this college for 35 years, the college that I was the of president oh, of really? half really? a century later. And uh, he was the business manager, ultimately kind of CFO type role, but the athletic department reported to him. So he'd travel and go to all the away sporting events and I'd ride in the back of the old Chevy Impala with my grandparents. And I would ask them questions about the war and Great Depression and kind of Dust Bowl era upbringing that they had. And they never thought anything was exceptional about their upbringing. And yet I was stunned as a kid in the you know right. early 1980s at just how much hardship they'd gone through that was just like water off a duck's back that They didn't think anything about any of it, it was just what you did. And my grandma had this great story about how my dad's older brother, about six years older than he was, um, he was born, grandma was pregnant when grandpa left for the war and then my uncle Roger was born while grandpa was away at the war and grandma and grandpa had just leased some property. They grew up on a farm. Grandpa Mm -hmm. was the hired man. They're only a year apart in age, but they met as teenagers when grandpa was the hired man on my grandma's parents' farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had leased some property and they were going to start farming. And grandma had grown up around farms, but she'd never driven a tractor. And all of a sudden her husband's away at war. She's giving birth. They have new land. There's planting and harvesting to be done. And she had to figure out how to do it. And so she had this leased property and she had a borrowed tractor, and she figured out a way to take my uncle's bassinet and attach it to the side of the John Deere tractor, and she taught herself how to plow and harvest. And I thought this was stunning as a 10-year-old kid. And Grandma was always amazed that I wanted her to tell me the story again and again, because she just thought it was necessity as the mother of invention. Okay. Now, here's what I need to
0: ask you to do. Please persuade me that this book written by a fifth generation Nebraskan, which is filled with stories, not filled with stories, I don't want to be, but there's a number of stories about your grandparents, your own upbringing, as of course there should be, about about your kids, what is it, detasseling corn? You have to persuade me that this isn't in some way a lament for a lost agrarian way of life that characterized America through almost all of its history and that you, in your generation and where you grew up in Nebraska, you saw the last glimmerings of this way of life. And that you, young man though you may be, are filled with Secretly nostalgia. Fuddy daddy. Well, you and Thomas Jefferson, oh no, we're not all <laughs> farmers anymore, the country can't work anymore. So get over that, address that critique or that, yeah. that, that thought
1: in the back of a reader's mind. So let's, let's uh, locate ourselves in economic history right. for a minute. Uh, hunter-gatherers, agrarianism, industrialization, the big tool economy, and whatever this thing is that we're entering now, the mobile economy, the digital economy, IT economy, service economy, Sociologists are throwing in the towel. They're just calling it the post industrial economy. It's kind of a weird thing to name something. We don't refer to industrialization as the the de-agriculturalization of America. It's not just the push from the farm that was technological substitution for labor that made it more efficient. It was also the pull of factories and cities, mass urbanization, mass immigration. We're going through a transition that is pretty unique in human history. We didn't have alphabets when hunter-gatherers settled down and began to farm. So I think the only analog for the economic disruption we're going through, Mm -hmm. and frankly what I care about even more than the economic disruption, is the social network and human capital implications for neighborliness of this moment. I think the only analog we have to this moment is the progressive era where people are leaving the farm, moving to the city, and there is bipartisan panic in America that America can't long endure. Democrat Woodrow Wilson, Republican Teddy Roosevelt, this won't work because you won't have transparency and virtue and neighborliness. They were wrong. We ended up recreating a kind of human capital in the cities. Urban ethnic neighborhoods were every bit as neighborly and accountable mm-hmm. as the Tocquevillian village had been. Mm-hmm. But there was a massive disruption in route to figuring out what human capital looked like in the cities again. I think we're going through an analogous disruption in the nature of work now, but probably even more than what they went through. Because we're going to have a shrinking of the average duration at a job that probably accelerates forever more. Hunter-gatherers and farmers, they didn't choose jobs. They just became 8 or 10 or 12. And they did more of what their parents and grandparents did. When you went from the farm to the city, you had a massive disruption. 15 to 25-year-old males went to the city and they had to get a job. And it was hugely unsettling for everybody's social structure. But once you got a job, you tended to keep it till death or retirement. Mm -hmm. What we're going through now is what they panicked we were going through back then, which is ever more rapid disintermediation, not just of jobs, but of firms and of industries. And so this is not agrarian romanticism. It is um, an awareness that if you separate work from the household, as we've done, And so kids come of age with lots of material surplus and very little exposure to production. Right. You're gonna have to create something that's gonna feel a little bit artificial, but that is a structured way of habit forming that build a work ethic even when necessity didn't mandate it. Okay, so tell me then we've got
0: changed economic circumstances. We're going through the country's been through something like this once before, and we're going through a huge something again, but your argument is that there are certain virtues that children need to learn, that American children, in particular, need to learn, that remain the same from the founding. Thomas Jefferson would recognize what you're talking about in this book, although he believed in an agrarian America, we've been in an industrial America, and now we're entering some third kind. Why do you argue, in particular, that there are certain virtues that Americans need to learn to make this republic work. Explain that line
1: of thought, which runs Um, through the whole book. America is premised on a few ideas. Uh, One is universal human dignity. Uh, We believe that people are created with dignity And that those natural rights are things that government exists to secure. Government is not the author or the source of those rights. So we believe government is limited because we think rights are prior to government. We believe a whole bunch of pre-political things. We believe that happiness is something that people have the right to pursue and, frankly, that can't be secured by compulsion. We believe that production
0: is... That people have the right to pursue happiness, and that is the only way to achieve it, by pursuing it on your
1: own. Yeah, I don't. Can I don't. Have, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think we think that. Uh, so here I'll, I'll blend a little bit American idea stuff with I think some modern sociology. Let's just sociology sociology for a minute. Um, I am solidly Aristotelian. Like one argument in this book is some slight anti-Platonism, but um, I don't want to scare people away. You're very no gentle, philosophical. On Plato, okay, Interests, but um, I think social science is now bearing out a lot of what Aristotle understood about you know, the the sort of way that nouns and verbs get wrapped up together in habit formation. You, you can't decide who you wanna be in the long term and your time is often occupied in the short term. You make decisions about the medium term and the medium term decisions you make about what to pursue end up creating short term tasks and right. duties and time expenditures in your life. And those things end up becoming habits and those habits define your long term character, right? And I think modern social science shows us that production makes people happy, consumption doesn't. And right now, our kids are not being raised with an instinctive, in-the-belly exposure to a distinction between production and consumption. We're occupying our kids' time with schooling and progression through grades as if that's their work. And then when they're not in school, it's just different types of consumption. We don't sort of burden them with having to understand the distinction between needs and wants. Well, that kind of burdening with them is a real serious kind of love. Because if you help your kids understand that one of the things that defines whether or not you're happy in life is earned success, it's a sort of a numerator of needs met over a denominator of perceived needs, one way to be happy in life is to get more stuff into the numerator, but it's not a very fruitful path. It's not very reliable. Mm -hmm. A much more reliable way to be happy in life is to guard against expanding the denominator of your perceived needs very far. And it turns out healthy people tend to know the difference between the word need and the word want. And we're raising a lot of kids right now with appetites that feel fairly limitless because we're teaching them that more and more consumption might fulfill them, but it's not true. It doesn't bear out in wise lives of older people or in any of the literature we have. I'd like to stay stay
0: with the nature of the American Republic for just a moment longer. The vanishing American adult, quote, material abundance can make us freer and less dependent, obviously, but simultaneously more lonely and isolated. And here is one of the most striking sentences in the book. It is very difficult for a rich Republic to remain virtuous, close quote. So here is this strange, seems to me you're, you're almost setting up, well, you mentioned Aristotle, you're almost setting up a tragic view of American history here where, uh, where the greatest generation endures the Depression, your grandparents, they endure the Depression, your grandfather goes off to the Second World War, and their grand, through the sacrifices that they made, their grandchildren get just the kind of life they wanted for them. And their great-grandchildren, you and your children, they get a period of peace, they get prosperity, and it ruins them that when America gets what it doesn't want war depression Americans are great people we produce the greatest generation and when we get what we want we're we're unimpressive as citizens
1: talk me out of it well uh, if you look at Inherited wealth around the world, um, people who figure out how to manage that inherited wealth without growing their kids' appetites, turning it into actual investments, it can work out well. But if you become consumers in the next generation, there's danger in that. Right? It, it's natural that there should be a cycle of production, wealth creation, and then recreation or leisure. By the way, right. there's an important historical debate about why the word recreation is more virtuous than the word leisure, because it's cyclically driving you back to productivity again. Oh. I want to I want to be revivified, but to get back to work, to live a life of gratitude by serving my neighbor again. It's natural that inside any family or any individual, or maybe even any generation, that production leads to wealth, leads to recreation. But if it slides across generations and people in the second and the third generation are just living off of inherited wealth from production past, there's something lacking in their lives that is unsatisfying for them. There's tons of data that shows that one of the highest correlates to happiness in life is whether or not you do work that you think anybody needs. Not at the end of the day, do my knees hurt or my ankles or my back or do I think I made enough money or was there some annoying jack wagon three cubicles over who talks loudly? Um, But do I think somebody needs me? If Monday morning or whatever day of the week you go and start your work, Mm -hmm. there's a place that you need to go because someone needs your work, you have worth and you have dignity and you have self-esteem. And just consuming more can't replace that. So I do think there is a danger in becoming so wealthy that we forget to inculcate those habits of productivity that lead to happiness. All right. So uh, one of the other
0: maxims here, learn how to read and decide what to read. Reading done well is not a passive activity like sitting in front of a screen. Close quote. Senator. Senator, kids these days, smartphones, computer screens, 75 inch flat panel televisions, and you want them to turn off the screens and pick up books. Now, lost causes can be noble, but I'd really love to hear you persuade me that this isn't a
1: lost cause. I'll grant
0: you the nobility. Well, let's do a a a little history
1: for a minute. I think if you have one uh, true founder of America, if there's a synquinon that if you didn't have this guy or gal, you couldn't get America, I think it's Gutenberg. So our founders believed that the habits of mass literacy Mm produce a world where you've got competing printing presses and it's competing printing presses that get to a sort of healthy skepticism of authority that leads to cultural pluralism that leads to a freedom of the press, speech, assembly, religion, protest. America um, is predicated on the habits of mind of decentralized power where individuals who are created with dignity where families are making lots of decisions for themselves. And there is a difference between the deliberative consumption, the the deliberation that comes from reading and reflecting upon a text, the dispassionate nature of deliberation and reflection and choice. There's something different there than the appetitive dopamine feedback loop of shorter and shorter digital addictions. Now, I am a celebrant of a lot in the digital economy. I run my own twitter account i don 't know I was staff. about to
0: say I was about to say I'm, I was about to charge you, and you would have no choice but to plead guilty. You are one of the tweetingest members of the
1: United States Senate going. tweetingest sounds almost dirty, but I am a, at Ben Sass is really me. There's an at Sen Sass, which is my press office, but at Ben Formal, Sass. Formal,
0: dignified, decorous, yeah. but the one that's really you. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, uh, commuting dad, 15 year old, 13 year old, six year old kid. Lots of fishing and snake spearing in our lives out in the, the country in Nebraska and We just have a great time commuting as I'm a dad educating my kids and that's who at Ben Sass is and I think there's a lot about the digital moment Economically and even the subset of the digital moment, which is digital media that has real potential But only if it's paired with a certain kind of habit formation that recognizes that constant digital uh, consumption and digital addiction is really dangerous because there's a time for deliberation, there's a time for choice, there's a time for action, but you need to ultimately be able to get back to a place where you can wrestle with long thinking and bigger arguments and your own mortality. And uh, and your kids read? They do. Because you make them read? Uh, because we've how now, do you, do we've now been, been successful in love getting them it? to love it, yeah. So, um, it, by the way, th- this book is not only not old man screaming, get off my lawn, this book is not in any way us holding out our family as a model. Fair we enough. we right. stumble and fall every day. But my wife and I have a shared theory of what we're doing. And one of, the, one of the motivators behind this book is I have a broad belief that as we're hollowing out local community and mediating institutions, and we're politicizing national conversation, we're left with this huge, vacuum of space where people don't have the chance to deliberate around a dinner table with their neighbors about how to raise their kids well, and I think a lot of people want to do that. So I wrote this book, and Melissa and I deliberated long and hard about this book as we were leaving the college, so this idea predates the Senate campaign, um, to just sort of think aloud about the theory of what we're trying to accomplish. We Mm -hmm. fail in the execution, but we've got to share the theory of what training wheels removal looks like. It's kind of how we think about parenting a teenager. We have, in the literacy chapter, a quantity and a quality theory of what we're up to. Wherever possible, we want to parent with the grain. I've got a theory of human fallenness. One of my kids is named after Augustine. It's theologically heavy for a six-year-old, so we call him Breck. But um, I, I definitely believe in a fallen human nature. And yet, when you can parent with the grain, I want to do it. And so when we could get our kids to be interested in reading at four, five, six years old, we wanted to just go with it at first, even if it had a cotton candy-like feel. Hardy Boys, Magic Treehouse, Encyclopedia Brown, Hardy Boys, whatever it was, we would just do more of that. When they liked okay. it, um, reward them, praise them, help build an identity that they are readers, uh, give them stuff occasionally. We're not big into material uh, consumption, but try to figure out how to reward them with experiences that they wanted when they were reading more. And then we'd substitute more quality into the flow of their quantity. We tried to do both at once. Mm -hmm. Tevi Troy, who I think you know, uh, has a a game called uh, The Century Club, which he used to play when he worked for President Bush. Bush and Rove and Tevi would have a competition to see if they could read 100 books in a year. My kids have never succeeded yet, but we played The Century Club at our house. A lot of people can read two books some week On vacation in August or over you know Christmas holiday but to try to hit two books a week 50 weeks in a row to get a hundred in a year that's saying something and we got our kids on this pathway of start reading stuff that's pretty shallow and cotton candy ish and then you read instead of five of those in a row you'll read two and then we'll substitute a menu of options of spinach versus asparagus versus broccoli and you pick among these three really good books and then we'll let you go back to reading some cotton candy for a while. Okay,
0: a few couple of last questions here. Two presidents, both of whom you write about in The Vanishing American Adult. Quote, at the beginning of President Obama's administration, a reporter asked him if he believed in American exceptionalism. After a pause, he strangely replied, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. Close quote.
1: Why was his reply strange? Yeah, honestly, I, I, it hurts me that President Obama said that. Like, it, it, one of the jobs of a president of the United States is to hold forth big, and I have a Gorsuch joke here by accident, I almost said bigly, uh, to hold forth loudly an understanding of what the American idea is about. And the American idea is that we believe 320 million Americans and 7 billion people across the globe, but we've got proximate governance responsibility for these 320 million. We believe they're created with dignity. And we believe that that is a pre-political thing that you affirm credibly as an American. And and that makes this country exceptional. Well, America is not exceptional in that we think we're better than other people. Mm -hmm. It's not an ethnic claim, it's not a tribal claim, it's a historical understanding of how unique Philadelphia 1787 was, which is, our founders said something incredibly arrogant in Philadelphia. Most people, most places in all of human history have been wrong, our founders said. Mm. Government isn't the author or source of your rights rights come by nature and government is our shared secular tool to secure those rights. And when you flip that, I I sort of, I I teach civics to a lot of Nebraska high school kids and I draw an island surrounded by an ocean on one side of the whiteboard and then I draw the same picture on the other side. And I say the pre-American view is that the island is your rights and the ocean is the government's power. Mm. And the American view is that the island is the government's power and the ocean are your rights. Second president, again, I'm quoting the
0: vanishing American adult, We need to go back to Reagan, not because you did or did not or would or would not have voted for him, but because he was presiding at the last moment when we talked seriously about what America means for all Americans. The Cold War against expansionistic Soviet Communism forced us to explain who we were and why we differed." Back to Reagan. Can you get kids to think seriously about the Cold War, about Reagan's speeches? you don't really mean back to Reagan, you mean back to an understanding of a historical
1: understanding of America. Yeah, I think okay. I think we're living right now with two political parties that are just hung over from the 1960s. I think both of these political parties are incredibly exhausted intellectually. Neither of them know what they're for. They're both mostly just against the other party and the vast majority of the American people want to tune them both out. I wanna be clear, I'm, I think I'm the third most conservative guy in the Senate by voting record, but I'm not very partisan because I think both of these parties are just not interesting. Um, I care about problems that are five and 10 and 20 years in the future, and neither of these parties is dealing with anything big. It's both, you know, Hatfield and McCoy's, but it's it's worse than that because it's seven-year-olds slapping each other to say he started it, she started it. And I think that, um, In the Cold War, you at least had a sense of an obligation to understand why expansionistic communism was bad. Mm. And we got to some clarity. And the Cold War, of course, was bipartisan. Harry
0: Truman starts it well, and Ronald Reagan finishes it well, and it's bipartisan in between. Yeah. Last question. One final quotation from the vanishing American adult, uh, quote, I am an optimist, and I believe that America's best days lie ahead. All right, Senator. From the greatest generation to these soft millennials, from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump, from the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which is on your list of, of items to read, from the Lincoln-Douglas debates to whatever it was that we watched during the presidential race last year. How, Let's put it, so you're an optimist, but you've named one of your children Augustine. Augustine is sitting there in northern Africa and watching Rome fall. He leads a great life, he becomes a saint, he produces an enormous volume of important literature. It's possible to lead a good life in the end of time, so to speak. Do you consider yourself more in the position of Augustine or do you really believe that this country's best days lie ahead? How can you be an optimist?
1: Well, uh, let's be optimistic. I'm giving you the
0: Augustan option is very dignified. Yeah, I'm, giving you, I'm, giving you a, I'm giving you a good pessimist to, to follow you, you, if you, you want, want
1: to. You already set it up, though, by saying we're at the last question. And right now, we'd have to do a whole bunch <laughs> of theology and political theory and parse the two kingdoms and do two cities and two loves and a city that has foundations. It seems too big for a parting question. So I'll say I'm definitely optimistic about the net productivity about what the global economy will produce in the next decade or two. More stuff. And not just stuff, more services that are quite interesting. Okay. I got here with, you know, a Waze app. Uh, I was in San Francisco this morning and coming down to Palo Alto. There are opportunities to not sit in traffic, which are not life-changing, but that was a nice little right. gift to know taking this exit could avoid right. that car wreck and that half an and hour five delay. Years,
0: five years you'll be riding in, but from now, in, you, actually you could ride from San Francisco
1: to here, there are driverless vehicles already. I like to drive, so that that sort of worries me. Now now I will be a Nebraska romantic (laughs) about the the county road and why every kid should drive at 14 like we do in Nebraska. But I think that what comes next in the digital revolution is going to be fascinating. We're going to have a layering of information and data on top of the physical world Mm -hmm. that's going to be fascinating. What I'm not sure about is that the benefits of that are going to redound to the median worker and the median Mm -hmm. family right now, and that I'm scared about. Because I don't think we're thinking at all in, about the disruption in the nature of work. Larry Summers talks about how 7.2 billion people on Earth, maybe you got 4.5 billion workers today. We're going to go to 9 billion people on this planet by the year 2050, and you might go to a place where you only need four billion, three and a half billion, three billion workers to more than meet the needs for all 9 billion people. Well, guess what? Work isn't just about how you put bread on the table. Work is the fundamental anchor of human identity and service. And we're meant to live a life of gratitude by doing something meaningful. We're meant to get to the evening and get some of that leisure or recreation or find food and and wine and fellowship with friends. Looking back at the fence you built that day or the field you farmed or the factory you co-labored with or the app that you designed, you're meant to look back at that and say, I produced something today. And right now, I don't think we're thinking nearly enough about the challenges. Challenges to the nature of work going forward. The potential is huge. Our political conversations, and our bigger than political, it's called it civic conversations, they're impoverished right now. Um,
0: I'm trying to find the book. the book actually ends on an up note and, and you, just, you just sounded more like Augustine than I was expecting <laughs> to you to right there. So the notion is, the notion is what? The notion is you need to teach your children these virtues so that they can become good Americans, so that they can continue the chain, so to speak. You're very conscious of American history and as you've demonstrated a couple of times here, you're happy to go back to Aristotle at the slightest provocation, but also become something because something big and
1: actually a little bit alarming is coming at these kids. Is that right? Yeah, there is a real difference between actually climbing the top of the mountain and going there on your friend's Instagram. And right now we're doing a disservice to our kids by pretending that a more sedentary passive life might fulfill them it's not true we need a crazy uncle teddy roosevelt in our life and i want kids to become intoxicated with all that they can travel to through literature across space into other cultures by learning to produce there's a lot of opportunity for our kids but we need a different conversation about how to raise them and passively allowing them to be peer segregated into a more sedentary posture it's not going to be satisfying for them or for the republic senator
0: ben sass of nebraska America's crazy uncle in the 21st century, and the author of The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis, and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson.